Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Seats, would you also take your Bible and open with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we've come to the end of the first vision or sign in this next series of seven visions starting in chapter 12, going through chapter 15. So we've been studying this for the last several weeks. This is the picture of our enemy, the dragon, who's come after not only the faithful Israelites, then he came after Jesus himself, and now he's coming after us, and we have something to learn from it this morning. So Revelation chapter 12, if you would just follow along in your copy as I read the text. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now that last little phrase there helps us to understand where we're going next week. But this week, we're going to study these verses right here and try to understand what the symbolism that we're being, that's being displayed for us, what does it mean? What does it mean for us today? So would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do thank you for your word and, and we confess that sometimes it is hard to understand. Some things are abundantly clear. The fact that you are a holy God, a loving God, uh, a sovereign God, that you are a just God, that you are the God who loves his people unconditionally, those things are abundantly clear in Scripture. The fact that we are a needy people because we are sinners, that our hearts are corrupt and our minds are corrupt, and apart from faith in Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, hopeless without you. It's clear that the Lord Jesus Christ, in love for his people and in obedience to your purpose and plan, he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again to make our salvation not just a possibility, but a surety. And we who have put our trust in him do so by the Spirit's power. All of these things are made clear in the word. And yet we come to a passage this morning that we have to understand by looking at other passages of scripture. So Father, would you teach us Would you allow me as a servant and a steward to to explain things in a way that we can grasp them, in a way that is consistent with your truth, and in a way that we can walk in this world faithfully prepared to honor you? Lord, I pray that you would have your way with us. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would receive our response um, as as an offering to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a big day, and it's been a big weekend for Haley. I'm so excited and, and pleased that she was able to come and be baptized uh, before you. But I, I want to I 
draw your attention to something some of you may be familiar with and some of you may not be familiar with. You don't have to give me a show of hands, but when I say the phrase, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming, surely some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you do. For those of you who do not know that line, this is a line from one of the darkest points in Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings. The companions of Bilbo Baggins, who's the main character, at least one of them, along with the bravest warriors of men, are gathered at the gates of Mordor, and they are in the midst of an absolutely hopeless battle. They are completely surrounded by their enemy. They have absolutely no hope, and they're just fighting for their lives. And at this particular point in the story, Pippin, the brave little hobbit, he has slain a massive troll, and that troll has fallen on him, and as a result of that, his entire world just turns to blackness. And as his consciousness begins to fade, he hears the cry, the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. Now the eagles represent the last hope. The eagles have the power and the ability to swoop in at the last second and rescue their friends from the darkness that is threatening to envelop them. And these are massive eagles in the story. They can come in with incredible speed. They can scoop up the people they need to with their massive talons, and then they can just fly away, taking them out of the fight, taking them out and away from all of the danger and the trial that they're facing. Now, some of you who are Tolkien fans, you you may even think that this is a plot hole in Tolkien's writing, right? I mean, yeah, everything gets bad, and then all of a sudden, he just whisks them away. The eagles are coming. The eagles are coming. Why didn't they just fly the ring to Mordor with the eagles, right? It, It may be a plot hole. I'll give you that. But what Tolkien is doing is he's he's helping us to connect with a longing that we have in all of our hearts, that when life gets desperately dark, all of us, at some point or another, we just want to be able to fly away. We just want to be able to get up out of the darkness, out of all of the trial, out of all of the difficulty, and we just want to be able to fly away and leave it all behind. When deep trouble comes and we see no way out, we all long for some miracle And many of us have prayed, God, would you just rescue me from this? We wish we could fly away, leave the troubles behind. That's what Tolkien is tapping into. And these eagles represent this miraculous rescue. But Tolkien is not the only author to write about this human impulse for rescue. In Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 28, you may know this passage, it says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to those who are faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, even young warriors will faint and be weary, and these young men will fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, God uses similar imagery. In fact, Tolkien got that imagery from the Scriptures. And and the whole point of God saying this to his people was that in the midst of the trials, he wanted them to know, I'm with you, 
and my rescue is coming. As we face the trials of this life and the attacks of our enemy, God is not powerless to effect our rescue. In fact, he's already begun that process. And so in this passage, there are two truths that dominate the the section. Number one, Satan plans to persecute the church. And number two, God plans to fight for his people. So look with me back at verse 13. And and by the way, if you're new, if you're visiting with us, this is what we do. I I read the text. I try to set it up so we understand kind of where we're going. And then we're going to go back to the verses and we're going to just walk through the text trying to understand what God's word says to us. So in verse 13, we read this. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now this is the, the fifth time in just a few verses that we've seen this phrase, thrown down. He just keeps repeating it. In in verse 9, we read about this, we studied this last week, that because of the cross of Christ, what Christ has accomplished for us, he has thrown down our, our ancient enemy, the ancient great dragon from the garden. He has thrown him down three times in verse 9, that's referenced. It's also referenced in verse 10. And here, again, we see it in verse 13. Why is John so insistent on repeating the fact that the great enemy of God's people has been thrown down? Because he wants us to understand that the one who pursues us, the one who seeks our harm, has already been ultimately defeated. Jesus has claimed victory over Satan. Jesus has cast him out of heaven. That's what we learned last week. Satan has no standing. He has no ability to accuse the the brethren. And he has suffered a mortal wound. In chapter 13, in verse 3, we're going to see that the beast that that arises on the earth, that, that is summoned by the power of this great dragon that's been thrown down, that that beast has a, a, a wounded head. And and most likely, this is the result of the fact that he's been cast down. And by the way, if you don't know where we are in the grand story of Scripture, this is exactly what God promised would happen to the ancient serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promised that the seed of the woman, referring to his own son, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And John wants us to know that that deadly wound has already been dealt. I understand you probably have been taught differently on that. It's okay. But this mortal wound doesn't render him completely ineffective. He still has one tooth left, so to speak. And so the dragon that has been thrown out of heaven has no place in heaven, no longer ability, has the ability to accuse the brethren, no longer has any hope of defeating Jesus himself. He's pursuing now the people of God, the church. The dragon pursues the woman now with the intent to persecute. In fact, the word pursue there in verse 13 is often interpreted as persecute because it has that same intention. It has that same meaning. The dragon is pursuing us with the intention of persecuting us. He failed to devour Jesus. He failed in his role to accuse the brethren. He's been thrown down to earth. And now with his last bit of energy, he is attacking the people of God. 
Now, you may remember from a few weeks ago, if you were here with us, that we, we talked about what this woman represents when we, we began our study in chapter 12. And this woman represents the old covenant people of God, the, the line from which the Messiah was to come. She represents faithful Israelites who were awaiting their Messiah. And I want to be careful to say that. Because oftentimes we'll get confused. Is this talking about national Israel or is this talking about faithful Israel? This is talking about faithful Israelites. Those faithful Israelites who were awaiting their Messiah, they had put their hope in the, the one that was to come, the promise of God. But she also represents, this woman also represents in a forward-looking sense, the new covenant people of God. Because as we see here, it is her offspring who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So in this symbol, we see this, this bigger picture of all of God's people being represented here. And the, the, the serpent is coming after all of God's people. The satanic persecution of old covenant saints has become the satanic persecution of new covenant saints. And in both cases, the serpent goes after those who are associated with Christ. He's going after those old covenant Israelites who were focused on and, and, and submitting to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah sent to save them from their sins. And he's going after those who look back and put our hope in, the, in, in Christ as the one who did live and die for our sins. And thus the passage that we all know becomes a reality. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's who the, the serpent is persecuting. Friends, do you have a category in your mind, a theological category in your mind for understanding that persecution goes hand in hand with your profession of faith in Christ? There's a lot of teaching going on in our culture, a lot of teaching in churches around here that would have you believe something other than what the scriptures consistently teach. That if you just have the, the right kind of faith, you'll never have another hard day in your life. That's not biblical at all. The promise of Christ was, if you come and you follow me, you're going to be following me on a, on a dangerous and narrow road. And if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And persecution comes because our enemy is trying to do everything he can to cause us not to proclaim the gospel of Christ, not to worship the Lord our God, and not to trust in his word. We must have a category in our mind for understanding where persecution comes from and the tactics that are used to try to get us off of that path of faithfulness, even though it's difficult. The Apostle Paul, and, and every other New Testament writer for that matter, but the Apostle Paul says so much about the reality of persecution, and he says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we are aff afflicted in every way. You know what that Greek word every means? It means every. In every way we are afflicted, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed. But we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we have not been forsaken. We are stricken down, but we have not been destroyed. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Paul is saying this, these things go hand in hand. Brother, sister, prepare your heart for this. Persecution is the common experience for Christians in this world. And John is not just 
telling us that. He's drawing on Old Testament history, which is what he's been doing throughout the Revelation. He's drawing on these Old Testament stories, Old Testament history, to help us understand who's behind the persecution, what are his tactics, and how we will overcome it. All right, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to jump around a little bit in this passage. In verse 13, we learn that the dragon, whom we've already understood is Satan himself, that ancient serpent, the dragon is angry and he has renewed his pursuit of God's people. But look down at verse 15 and we see how his tactic takes shape. In verse 15, it says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And this is symbolic language. What is it telling us? It's telling us that Satan's method of persecution is to use his mouth. And it's always been that way. He uses his mouth to persecute because he's a deceiver and a liar. He's called the father of lies. And that's what this symbol is helping us understand. That's the flood that's coming out of his mouth. He wants to sweep the church away with a flood of false teaching and worldly ideologies. He pours out a flood of deceptive words seeking to lead astray, Jesus warns us, even the elect if possible. Our enemy wants to destroy our faith. He wants to destroy our trust in God. And his tactic hasn't really changed all that much. If you go back and you look at the, the very first instance of, of Satan entering into God's story, you go back to Genesis chapter 3. Matter of fact, you can look there with me. It's not hard to find. Just close your Bible and then open it and you use the first page and you're there. Genesis chapter 3. And we, the first thing that Satan does, the very first words that the scriptures record coming out of his mouth in Genesis chapter 3 are these. I'll read verse 1, and then we'll get into the the section where it shows the quotation. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, first words of Satan, Did God actually say? Did God actually say this? We don't have to be theologians to understand that he is questioning the word of God right there. Very first thing he does. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first thing he does is he enters onto the scene and he begins to ask a question that casts doubt in Eve's heart upon the word, the trustworthiness of the word of God. Eve had never had any reason, never had any reason to question whether or not God had told her the truth about the fruit that grows on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She had never considered the possibility that God was limiting her experience of life in some way. But now she is. Now she is because Satan is a liar and he's a deceiver and he wants to use his mouth, he wants to use his words to destroy our trust in God's word. So he asks, excuse me, dear lady, but did I actually hear God say that there's something in this garden that you're not allowed to eat? That sounds a lot like what Satan is saying to women today. Is there, is there something that culture says that you can't do? That you shouldn't do? That you can't claim as your own? She had never thought this way. She never had any reason to question but Satan says, how could God withhold something from 
you. Why doesn't God want me to eat this fruit? She had the whole world of fruit. The Bible says that she was given access to everything in the garden, but this one. Satan's question causes her heart to not fix on all of the wonderful things that God had given her, but on the one thing that God said no to. And God even told her why you can't eat the fruit. You can't eat the fruit from this tree because the day that you eat of it, you will die. You will surely die. God's work in, was to protect her there. And she, she listened to the serpent. She took from the tree. And then the serpent said this to try to you know, sweeten the deal in verse 4. He, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God says, you will surely die. And the serpent says, you will not surely die. He's a liar. For God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him. You will know good and evil. Dear lady, this fruit won't cause you to die. In fact, the only reason he doesn't want you to eat this is because he knows that when you eat it, you'll be like him. That's the way that the the serpent deceived the woman. Satan's deception in the past and in the present aims to call God's word into question. And if we're looking back at Genesis 1 and 2, then we see some pretty amazing things about the word of God. It was by the word of God that the whole universe was fashioned. All of creation is spoken into existence. God's word is purer and more powerful than anything we know. God's word is absolutely true. It is the foundation of all reality. But the serpent challenges our view of reality by calling into question God's word. It was not about some arbitrary fruit out in the middle of the garden. It was always about whether we were going to trust God and his word or we were going to go out on our own. The deceiver wants to turn the world upside down, and that's exactly what we see, not just happening in Scripture. That's exactly what we see happening in our culture right now. We don't have to look very far to see deception and worldly ideologies that are absolutely contrary to what is clearly revealed in Scripture. Let me give you a few. In recent years, we've seen ungodly ideas take hold in our culture at an unbelievable pace. And I say unbelievable, I probably shouldn't say that. I should probably be prepared for that. I'm 45 years old. I've I've not lived a long time, but I've never seen anything like what we've seen in the last six years. The Marxist politics of revolution, the Marxist politics that have a death toll of over 100 million over the last century, those politics, those ideas are just running rampant throughout our culture. The sexual revolution of the LGBTQ plus IA alliance, that has absolutely seeped into everything, including many who still call themselves churches. And it is completely contrary to Scripture. Critical theory and all of its offshoots, and you may not know what I'm talking about. Maybe this will give you an opportunity to reach out and search some of this stuff. But critical theory and all of its offshoots have corrupted the thinking of so many young Americans. And it, too, is antithetical to Scripture. And there are plenty of Christians, prominent Christians, saying, no, 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 it's compatible. No, it's not. No, it's not. Gender theory has caused many to reject one of the most basic truths of humanity, that God created us male and female, period. 
There is no gender spectrum. And yet, these ideas have captivated our culture and they have crept their way into the church. And this is nothing new. This is an age-old tactic. Our enemy is still trying to deceive. He's trying to deceive the woman by causing women in our culture to believe that God's word is not to be trusted with regard to your identity, worth, purpose, and responsibility. Our enemy is still trying to deceive men in this culture by causing them to believe that God's word is not to be trusted with regard to understanding their identity and worth and purpose and responsibility. Don't drink in the lies. Don't drink in the deceptive lies. Don't be swept away by the flood of deception. Look to God's word and trust it. That's why we're here. Satan's strategy is to attack the truth of God. Like I said earlier, the issue at stake is not some arbitrary fruit. The issue at stake is who's going to have the right to determine what is good and what is not. The essence of sin, listen to me here, the essence of sin is our longing for autonomy. And what that means is that we want to be able to choose for ourselves, irrespective of any outside authority, we want to be able to choose what is right and what is wrong. We don't want to, we don't want to give that responsibility and authority to God. We want to claim it for ourselves. Any time and every time. And this is not just something that the culture has to deal with. This is in the church, brothers, sisters. Every time that you say, I know what the Bible says, but... I'm going to go do this. You've just determined I'm going to make my own decisions and God can just stay over there. Every time that we say, I'm going to determine in my own mind that I know better than God with regard to this issue or that issue, that's the foundation of sin in our hearts. And just to be quite honest with you with Scripture, the deceiver is at work there. But... In the Lord's kindness, in the Lord's kindness, he promises to protect us from ourselves and from our enemy. Look back at the text. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now again, this is symbolic. And, and the symbolism is intended to show us something about what God has done to protect his people from the serpent's attacks. The means of this woman's escape, if you just notice it, the means of this woman's escape is not something that she does for herself. It's something that God provides for her. He gives her two wings so that she can fly away. And this language, this is not the first time we see this in Scripture at all. You see this language of being given two wings to fly away in Isaiah, right, which I read earlier, but you also see it earlier on. You see it in the story of the Exodus, where God delivered his people from their bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4, we read this, you yourselves, this is God speaking, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's the first time we see that language. It's not the last. 
And God is using that symbolic language to describe the way in which he led them out, the way in which by his power and by his might and the work that he had done, he led them out of slavery. God brought them out of slavery, out into the wilderness. And if you can remember that story, pretty much all they did was walk. They made a sacrifice that they did not understand, and then God delivered them, and then they walked out. And God made them wealthy on their way out. And then as they were walking out, God was fighting for them. He put a hedge around them so that when the army of of Pharaoh actually began to come in, he put a wall of fire around them. And then he walked them right out to the sea. And they're thinking, well, there's fire behind us. There's water in front of us. What are we going to do now? And God just says, just stand there and be silent. I'll show you. And he opens the sea and they go. They were suffering under the weight of persecution and they cried out to God and God heard them and God came and God rescued them and God fought for them. He plucked them up out of the fight as it were and he took them out into the wilderness where he protected them even there. Remember what he did for them in the wilderness? He gave them food to eat. He gave them water from the rock. I mean, he did everything to protect them. He did everything to fight for them. He did everything to nourish them out in the wilderness. And John is bringing our minds back to that language and saying that when the, when the, saint, the serpent, when he comes after us, God's going to protect us. Not only does God protect us with the wings of an eagle, but also with the aid of the earth itself. Now we're back in Revelation chapter 12, verse 16 says, but the earth came to the help of the woman, right? The, the serpent is flooding out these deceptive words like a flood, trying, like, like a river trying to sweep us away. And what happens is the earth opens its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Now you should be anticipating this. There's an Old Testament precedent for this. Right? If, you, if you look at the Old Testament reference all the way back in Exodus chapter 15, we read this in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And what is he referring to there? When, when the army of Egypt began to fight against or try to you know, come and take their slaves back into captivity, they were allowed to go across the sea on dry ground. And then when they were safely on the other side, what did God do? He closed up the waters. And the earth swallowed them up. That's the reference that we have here. They didn't do anything. Israel did not lift a finger to fight against their enemy. All they were required to do was to trust in God's promise and stand there and watch as he destroyed the army of Egypt. Now what's the point of this? What's the point? The point is that God will fight to protect his people just like he always has. And if I could summarize what we've learned over the last three weeks as we've been studying chapter 12, we've seen that he's been fighting for us since the very beginning. He's already shut the accuser's mouth. He's already cast him down to earth. He's already nailed our sin to the cross and secured our ransom for eternity. He has crippled our enemy and given us his truth so that we can spot his deceptive lies. He has given us his spirit to strengthen us and to protect us in the wilderness of this world. And by his spirit and by his word, he's going to nourish us until our life ends or Christ returns. That's the picture that John wants us to get. The enemy is trying his best, but he's failing at every, 
every step of the way, and he's failing because God is protecting and God is providing and God is nourishing his people. The devil is fighting against us, but the Lord is fighting for us. And in the end, God wins. I'm going to read ahead in the story a little bit, but one day, that ancient serpent, the one who's already been cast down, he's going to ultimately be destroyed. And guess what we're going to do? The same thing that Israel did on the banks of the Red Sea. We're going to stand and watch as the great serpent is finally and completely cast into the judgment that he deserves. Christ is going to come on his great white war horse. He will make war on the enemy of God. And and with the sword of his mouth, he will throw down his enemy once and for all. And and he will take up his kingship. And he will rule the kingdom that has been given to him by his father. And we, as his co-heirs because of his grace, will rule there at his side. That's the picture. We're not there yet. We'll get there eventually. And until that day comes... The evil one, according to this vision, the evil one is going to try to engulf the church in a stream of lies and delusions and worldly ideas. Which means that you're facing that today. The deception and the lies of our enemy, that's a means of his persecution of us. And we're facing those things today. And God has given us his spirit, which he will never take away from us, and his word, which he has preserved for us, so that we're not fooled by those deceptions. New philosophies, political utopias, pseudo-scientific dogmas will be proposed, but the church must hold firmly to the word of God. And by the church, that means you. Every time you pick up your device and you look on some news feed, or you look on some social media feed, guess what you're being tempted to do? You're being tempted to believe something about this world, or about yourself, or about humanity, that may or may not be true. Most often, I don't think it is. And you've got to fill your heart and your mind with the scriptures, and you've got to place your trust in God's word. And if you don't understand it, you're not alone. There are plenty who, who really need to grow in our knowledge of God's word. But you're also not alone. Just look around. We will face the wilderness of affliction. It is guaranteed because we live in a culture that doesn't want to hear what we have to say as God's people, and they certainly don't want us to display it by living it out, but Christ is still with us, and we will be tempted to embrace all of these godless ideas within our culture, but Christ is urging us to stand firm in the truth. In fact, we're to do even a little bit more than that. Rather than just standing firm in one position, he's called us to hold out the truth, to be salt and light. You know why we need to be salt? Because our culture is decaying. You know why we need to be light? Because our culture is dark. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be witnesses until Christ returns. And until that day comes, we need to know what we're up against. So I'm going to read the very last verse in this passage. And we're going to see it come into more shape a little bit next week. But in verse 17, it says this. Now that God has protected his people and his, his attempts have failed again, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's us. And those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our minds for the battle we face. Every time we pick up a device, every time we turn on the news, every time we scroll through our feeds, every time we turn on the television, we're being flooded with ideas. What are we going to believe? What are you going to believe? And what weapons has the Lord given us to help us in this battle? I'm going to give you four, really quickly. Four things. Four weapons of grace. That's the language I'm going to use, and it's not my own. It comes from D.A. Carson. Weapons of grace that have been given to us so that we can do battle on a day-to-day basis. Number one, the blood of Christ. That's our first weapon. The blood of Christ is our first weapon. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, we read this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What Paul is saying there is that apart from Christ, we were separated from God. We had no hope in this world. We had no confidence in in our eternal state. In fact, we had every expectation of the judgment of God falling upon us justly. But now, because of the blood of Christ, because he lived a righteous life we could never live, and because he died a sacrificial death on the cross in the place of his people, his blood has now sufficed to draw us near to God. Our hope of relationship with God is wrapped up not in our efforts, but in the work of Christ, in the blood of Christ. And as we battle against the enemy and his lies, we must always keep before us this gospel reality that it is through the blood of Christ that God has redeemed us and made us his own. Friend, it is not your moral success or the modification of your behavior, or like Haley mentioned earlier, her desire to be perfect and to be a great student. That is not the reason that God loves you. Your value in God's eyes is not tied to how many likes you get on your social media platform of choice. If you're a believer in Christ, and the Bible tells us that God's love was fixed upon you before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, before you ever did anything good or bad, before you'd ever done anything. And that helps us understand that God's love is unconditional. It's not conditioned on you. That's why we call it grace. Because if it was left to us to do something to earn God's love, we could never measure up, ever. None of us. Don't believe the culture's lives that all we really need to do is to turn over a new leaf. No, we don't. We need to be brought from death to life according to Ephesians 2. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. And it's God by His Spirit who makes us alive. The blood of Christ. We need to understand this. And here's why we need to understand this. And Haley, I'm so thankful that you mentioned it. Because if you take the mentality that your acceptance with God is somehow dependent upon you, then when you're doing well, you will become an arrogant jerk. And when you're not doing well, you will fall into despair. So when when the, the temptation from the enemy comes and you believe a lie and you follow it for six or eight months on social media, and you become a champion for that, and then all of a sudden, a brother or a sister pulls you aside and says, hey man, I don't think think you're going in the right direction. The scriptures say this. If you have a view of your moral superiority is why God loves you, then it's going to crush you. But if you remember that God's love for you is rooted in Christ and in his grace, then you can say, oh man, I shouldn't have gone there. Thank you for pointing that out to me. Help me to know how I can go forward now in faithfulness to God's word. 
The blood of Christ is a weapon that we use in our battle against the temptations and the deceptions of our enemy. That's not the only weapon. The second weapon is the Word of God. I mean, you knew this was coming, right? The Word of God. In fact, as we look throughout Scripture, we see so much about how we're to to utilize the Word and build into our lives sound doctrine. By the way, that's, that's another way of saying the Word of God. We live by it. We understand ourselves by it. We understand our world by it. All of those political ideas, all of those new social trends, all of those things should be filtered by Christians through the Word of God to determine whether or not they're true. Don't just accept it because it sounds good. So many things sound good to our modern sinful sensibilities. And yet it's God's word that tells us what is actually true. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. This verse, more than any other, helps us to understand the value of what we hold in our hands. This is the word of God. This is God speaking to us. This is the words of the one that cannot lie. This is the word that is true. And it is to help us understand what is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is not. Brother, sister, if you claim to be a believer in Christ, then you must commit yourself to the reading and studying of God's word so that you can spot the deception of our enemy, so that you can be equipped for the good works that God has called you to live in. When it comes to doing the will of God, we are blind without the word. I cannot stress it enough. That's one of the weapons that we have. There's a third weapon. So we have the blood of Christ, we have the word of God, and we have prayer. Or I'll use the the phrase that is used in Ephesians 6. We have prayer in the Spirit. It's prayer that is prompted by the Spirit of God at work in us. Breck has done a wonderful job teaching on the the armor of God a few months ago. And that is on our website. You can find it on our our podcast if you want to listen to that. He did an excellent job. I would highly recommend that you go back and look at it. But you you will see in that that there's only two offensive weapons that we have. There's only two ways that we take the fight back to the enemy. And it's the short sword of the word and prayer. Prayer is active. Prayer is not something that we just passively participate in. It's something we are actively involved in. And both prayer and the word of God are indispensable to us as we battle against our enemy. And sometimes our prayers don't consist of much more than just crying out for God to show us our sin, crying out for God to forgive us again, crying out for God to cleanse us and raise us back up. And brother, sister, pray that prayer. Continue to pray that prayer. But understand that throughout all of our lives as believers, our lifeline to our captain is prayer. And finally, the last weapon we have in our battle against sin is the community of faith. And this is that really awkward point where the pastor tells you, just look around the room at all of these men and women and young people. Some of them have been doing it a little longer than you have. And that's good because you need mature saints to help you see things you don't see. 
The Bible assumes, the New Testament assumes that young Christians are going to older Christians so that they can understand things more clearly. And if you've got this arrogant idea that I, don't, I just got the internet, I can figure out everything I need to figure out all on my own, I don't need to ask anybody else about it. Let me tell you, brother or sister, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you could avoid some of those things if you would reach out to some of these brothers and sisters who love you and who have walked in this world a long time and sought to be faithful to Christ, and they've fallen too, and we can learn from their wounds. God has not placed us in the wilderness alone. He's placed us in the wilderness together. We're called to do life together. We're called to battle sin together. We're called to pray for one another, not just when we mess up, but hopefully before we do at times. Let's take heed to the scripture that says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to build into our lives layers of relationships where we can learn and grow and pour into others and hopefully, prayerfully, be a help to them as much as they can be a help to us. Some of us have learned that and some of us still need to learn that. So let's do that. Let's learn how to rely on one another and learn from one another. And these are just a few of the weapons that are at our disposal, but our time is up. As we battle more and more against the deception of our enemy, we haven't seen it all. There's more to come, I promise you. And yet we can hold on to the blood of Christ and know where our worth lies. We can hold on to the word of God and know that we can trust it and it is true, even when it arrests our sensibilities and confronts them. We have the, the, the right to come before God because of Christ in prayer to cry out to him, and we are not alone in the wilderness. We have one another. And one day, the heavens will open. Right? If we go back to the vision of this passage, one day, the heavens will open, and this world will no longer be our home. With spiritual wings, Christ will call us to meet him in the air. He will come to finish the battle that he started on Calvary. He will be our mighty fortress, and our battle against Satan, sin, and death will be over. But until that day comes, we've got to prepare ourselves. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us to do that. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it poses for us because it, it causes us to not only think deeply, but also to feel deeply. You call us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. So help us to do that. And I pray that today's time of worship, not just the sermon, but the reading and the singing and the, the testimony and the display of baptism and all of that, even the fellowship that's going to take place after we say amen, Father, I pray that all of these things would spur us on and prepare us for the battle that is ahead, the battle that takes place between our ears and our minds. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.